We have so much to be thankful for. Uh, I have, I'm one of those guys that is not perfect, but I have perfect intentions. You know what I mean? And my perfect intentions were this morning to have pictures up here on the screen from the baptism. Dave and Amy took some incredible pictures. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for taking those pictures. It was like, I don't know, like 4,000 or something like that. I can't remember the count. Uh, we're sifting through them and editing and looking at them all. And, and I was like begging for him and he got them to me. And it's like, oh wow, there's a lot. Um, and so I think next week we'll have those up there as well as Wednesday night, the, the, the kids kicking off GPS and Tupas. It was a full house. I, I mean, there was, there was kids uh, all over the place and our volunteers. It was just tremendous. Uh, the preschool, they kicked off this week. Um, I, I'm telling you, it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing. I look back at those pictures of baptism. and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a baptism picture hog right now. Um, I'm just looking at them and smiling. I think, wow, that's so cool. And I've heard a couple of you say, when do we get to see them? We'll get them to you, okay? Um, but they're just incredible reminders of what God is doing in the lives of people. And when I look around and just want to say thank you, God, because you know what? It's not always like that, is it? I think of what's going on internationally and even in the U.S., the, the tragedies, the things that have taken place. It almost feels that sometimes like it's more of a fearful, scary place than it is a place of celebration. And I just think, you know, London, they've been what, attacked five times in a year, and, and hurricanes have just pounded the southern U.S. Um, just thinking of what's going on there. We hear about the scandals at work, home, the drug overdoses, the human trafficking, relationship problems. And when I, when I hear all that and bounce with what we just started with, I sit there and say, how do we do this without God? I don't know how we could ever think that we would want to do it without God. But yet there are people who sit there and say, where is God? Is God absent? Is he sleeping? Does he have no power? I mean, do we not see what's going on around here? And they say, where is he at? But I'm, when I think about that, that isn't too much different than the cries of 25 centuries ago. There were problems then as well. And they made the same kind of cries and same kind of wonders and questions and thinking, where is God? I mean, there's so much to celebrate, but on the flip side of the coin, there's so much we look at and say, why is it this way? And I think about what's been going on recently and just in our area, and I'll share a little bit more at the end of the sermon as, as far as just personally when I look at things, how I feel. But I, I sit there and say, how do we keep pure in the face of adversity? How do we maintain our Christian walk in a culture that seems godless? And so I've been just toying my heart and praying about it. And, and over the past uh, month or so, I keep coming back to the book of Daniel. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, if you've been through a, a Bible study with Daniel, um, do not expect that, okay? Um, please don't compare me to Max Lucado or Beth Moore or whoever. Um, as I've read through Daniel, there's just certain things that really stick out. And I want to share with you what God's laid on my heart going through Daniel as we look into the culture we are and who we are as Christians and how do we have the resolve and how do we stay pure and how do we stay bold where we are today with what's going on. So open up your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. 
Uh, if, you, if you're seeking and searching and having a hard time, uh, just make sure you get past Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And just soon after that, you'll find Daniel. The prophet Daniel, he lived in the uh, 6th century before the birth of Jesus. And sometimes we sort of get caught up like Daniel. It seems like so, you know, we can't even relate, right? Let me tell you else what was going on in the world at that time. The construction of the Acropolis began in Athens. The Mayan civilization was flourishing in Mexico. Aesop was writing his fables. Confucius and Buddha were alive at this time. Greek art began uh, to truly excel. Phoenicians made their first known sea journey around Africa. So if you ever look at world history and you hear all those names and those things, it's like, that's the same time as Daniel. And sometimes we think like Daniel like way before all this, right? That was then. And at that same time in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon laid siege upon Jerusalem and defeated Jerusalem. And that wasn't really the outset where it started, but you'll hear a little more on that in a second. But Daniel and his three friends, which we know as different names, but they were um, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael, and Azariah. They, the four of them, were taken captive, and they were led on a 500-mile hike back to Babylon. Just picture right now, what's 500 miles from here? Okay? Walk it. Walk it. And probably tied up. And maybe a, a whip to your back. And you can start to understand the beginning of Daniel's life as he was taken from his home that he loved and his family that he loved and the surroundings that he was used to. And now you are going to be abruptly moved away into a place you don't want to go. They would uh, eventually then, as we know, as we get through the book of Daniel, be commanded to do all kinds of things, bow to all certain idols. And that will come in a few weeks. But when you think about this, what was going through their minds during that whole ordeal? I mean, what would be going through your mind? You've just been uprooted from northwest Ohio, and you are sent on a journey 500 miles away walking and being commanded and told what to do. And like I said, maybe have a whip to your back. Would you draw closer to God in that moment? Or would that make you doubt his existence? So many people today get mad because a church said something or did something like, I'm not going back to church and I I don't like God anymore. Just because somebody said something, you doubt God. So what would happen in this instance? My guess is if you're going to doubt God just because somebody said something that made you mad, my guess is you would never believe in the existence of God if you were uprooted as Daniel was. Would you be prepared to stand for God when you grew up believing in Him or would bitterness start to take root or confusion as you're told to worship an unknown God that you've never heard of before? When you look into the book of Daniel, we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Verse 2. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. 
when you start reading this book, it's almost like, God, what are you doing? Nebuchadnezzar was this mighty ruler of a Babylonian empire, and he came against Jerusalem. Actually, he was on his way to get the pharaoh of Egypt, because the pharaoh of Egypt had invaded Babylon. And in response, this young prince Nebuchadnezzar at that time decided to defeat the Egyptians. So we don't know whether he was either on his way of pursuing that fleeing army of Egyptians that he invaded Jerusalem or was on the way back. We're not sure. But along the way, he subdued Jerusalem as he's also trying to take care of the pharaoh of Egypt. Now we may wonder why in this whole situation, why Nebuchadnezzar is going down there, God says, and God gave him over. It's like, why would we do that? Why would the Lord give Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. I mean, wasn't he a good ruler? No. And there's, there's probably a few reasons. We could throw some out there. The main reason was Israel's idolatry, their lack of observing the Sabbath. God had given these commands, these rules. You are to worship me and worship me alone, and you are to set aside the Sabbath, and, and God's people was not doing that. And we wonder why we get attacked when we don't do this. When we decide to walk away from God, well, why is God not helping me in this moment? Did you not just walk away from God? And yet you expect him to be walking with you when you took the first step away? And perhaps this was part of the reason why. Punishment for disobedience is bad for everyone, but even the one providing the discipline, which is God himself, do you think he really wanted that? Fortunately, God's love prevails and even discipline. And in the midst of dark days, the prophets who predicted the judgment of this that would come also declared that God is also committed to his people and that one day they would be restored. Nebuchadnezzar, as we read this, what I think sort of is adding insult to injury was he took some of the furnishings from the temple. He grabbed things that were sacred, things that were holy to God and God's people. And he said, I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it in my temple where my God is. When he took these things and put them into his own temple, it was really a, a dramatic declaration of Nebuchadnezzar saying, my God is bigger than your God. And my God is better than your God. Now, the God of Israel, you have to go ahead and defend yourself. It's almost the kind of statement that Nebuchadnezzar was making in doing all this. He was also declaring defeat of Israel's God, and that his God, Bel, which was also named Madoc, was the most powerful. Now, this was a very low time for God's people. Obviously, they themselves were hurting and wondering what's going on. And it seemed that the God of Israel sort of lost out to the gods of Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. But the book of Daniel shows God defending himself at a time when the conquest of Israel might have brought God's reputation into disgrace. To the world appeared they had lost. But God was sitting there saying, it's not over. It's not over. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah knew that God was a true victor. And they were resolved to trust him to the end. But in that moment, everybody probably questioned. 
Parents, how many times have you seen your children make decisions and you wonder, where are you at in this, God? What's going on? And you wonder, will they boomerang back? Will they come back to the Lord? What's going to happen in this situation? And maybe it's in your children. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a, a family member who you've looked at and it's like they have been like taken captive and led away. God, where are you at? Are you going to let them remain captive to this culture? So in verses 3 and 4, if you can look there with me, Daniel and his friends were called into the king's service. It says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select one strong, healthy, and good-looking I'm sorry, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar not only confiscated holy things from the temple, but he also took some of the most wisest, most healthy most strong, talented. Basically, he took the shining lights of Judah's future. He looked out amongst the people he had and said, take the top ten is basically what he was doing. The cream of the crop. It said that they were basically youth without blemish. These were young men, perhaps 13 to 17 years old. They were skillful and talented and smart and healthy, good-looking. And Nebuchadnezzar demonstrated as a, as a wise ruler, an administrator, and a very shrewd strategist that if I can take your best and plant them amongst my people to serve, it will improve my nation and I will make your nation weaker by removing those that are going to be the most helpful to you. Is that not a good strategy? Verse 5, let's read there. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff returned them with these Babylonian names. I'm sorry, renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Ah, now some of those names are coming familiar, right? We always hear the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We never started off with their Hebrew names. It's funny, we sing about their Babylonian names. But they were given from this Babylonian government some kind of training. A training that would take them from one culture to another. And look carefully at everything they did here from food and education and even changing the name. And yet having the same food and the wine prepared for the king, it was supposed to be a special honor, right? But for these young men, they knew that the food that they were about to partake in was food that they were told not to partake in. In the ancient world, much more than the modern world, it was a huge difference. By the way, the food was enjoyed and prepared for those that were in royalty and those who were not. Calvin wrote this, that Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Jews were a stiff-necked and obstinate people and that he used the sumptuous food to soften up the captives. 
So let's soften up our captives, but also let's give them something that we know they're not supposed to eat. Let's change their way. Let's see if they give in to breaking the rules. Now, for those of you who maybe are on special diets, or I, I hear like, I often hear people say, oh, it's my cheat day. Okay, some of you already know what that means. That's the day you get to indulge in more sugar than you would normally indulge in, right? I don't know about you, but if I was doing that, I, my, I think every other day might be a cheat day. Because there's certain things, how do you say no to, right? But for these young men, it's like, no, this is just, I don't even have a cheat day for this certain food. I don't even have that moment where I can say, just a little bit's okay. For them, they knew this. God said no, so we say no. Not only were they given a special diet, they were also assigned new Babylonian names. Now listen carefully what their names meant. Daniel means, God is my judge. His name was changed to Belshazzar, which means Bell's prince. Bell, again, was that God, that false God. The name Hananiah means beloved by the Lord, or God's grace. His name was changed to Shadrach, meaning illumined by the sun God. The name Mishael, which means who's like God, was changed to Meshach, which means who's like Venus. The name Azariah means the Lord is my help. It was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego. It was as if your name has something to do with God, but now we're going to make it over here, which means it has something to do with a false God. For three years, their diets, their education would center around the Babylonian tradition and the culture. And the purpose of the food, the names, and the education was very simple. This was meant with a total effort of indoctrination to go making these young Jewish men behave like their Hebrew God and cultures. Undoubtedly, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to communicate to these young men, you're going to look to me for everything. You're no longer going to look to God. However, Daniel and his friends, as you know, stood. And they resolved to not give into this culture. They resolved to say, no, I don't think so. This world system you're talking about, no, we will look to God. Now, Satan, I believe, uses a similar strategy even against us today. He wants to indoctrinate us into the world system. I believe Satan wants us to identify ourselves in the reference to the world we live in. Instead of looking at what God has given us as new names, or instead of looking at what God has called us in our identity in Christ, it's so much easier to do what? Look at my title. Look at my position at work. Oh, I'm the MVP. Oh, I'm a starter. Oh, I'm the top whatever. And we get caught up in promotions and titles and we chase those things which maybe will make us more powerful or more feeling good about ourselves, right? 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you're not like that. Everybody hearing this? You're not like that. You're a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. When we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we know that God gives us his very spirit. We are new in Christ. We have new identities. It no longer matters if my title is pastor, doctor, 
president, CEO, starter, second chair, whatever it may be, that doesn't matter. That's how we measure ourselves in this culture, right? But what we forget is our names that God gave us is a lot different. We are salt and light. We are a branch of the true vine. We are chosen. We are appointed. We are God's temple. We are a work of art. We are new in Christ. We're God's children. We are holy. We are blameless. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are never separated by God's love. We are citizens of heaven. We are given a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. That's our identity. That's our titles. And young ladies, you are a child of God. You are not somebody else's possession. And young men, you are not a jerk. You're God's loved child as well. Given a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And as much as we get titles given to us, that's not who we are. Can I give into the what this culture sort of leans towards? And Satan also, I believe, wants to feed us what the world offers as well. Oh, this like those foods. You know, I'm going to guess that the food that came from Nebuchadnezzar's kitchen probably looked pretty awesome. If that food's coming into my house every day from the king, every day is a cheat day because it is going to look incredible. It is peanut butter pie. It is strawberry shortcake with extra whipped cream and ice cream. Yes, both. Thank you, please. Okay? Every day I'm looking at them saying yes and yes and oh, make me a cup of coffee now that you're giving me that pie. Yes. Oh, steak? Absolutely. Well done, sure, but a little bit more, not so much. Okay, thank you. Bring it, right? Because it looks so good and it tastes so good. I don't know if the last time you went into a nice restaurant... And they offered you everything. And you're like, can I just have some crackers and water? How about just some, cut up some broccoli for me. Don't even cook it. Just wash it off and throw it on a plate and bring it. You probably wouldn't do that, would you? I wouldn't do that. But what we learn from John is, in 1 John 2, 16, says the world offers, listen, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. These are from the world. All those pleasures, when, you know, the king was offering, what? Something that looked really good. And I believe Satan does the same thing today. He offers us stuff that looks really good. Sin always looks pleasurable. Sin always, we look at things like, whoa, and they're like, that looks pleasurable. That's enjoyable to my eyes. That's enjoyable to my touch. Enjoyable to my taste. Enjoyable to get high. Right? But it is not. It is deceitful. That is from the world. That's the culture that these young men were taken into. Take what is going to make you feel good. And we don't need that. And I believe Satan also tries to educate us in the ways that we're with false doctrine. I don't know how many even pastors or churches that are out there and people who proclaim to be children of God do not open up the Bible at all. And they just, here's my opinion. When I heard this from another Eastern religion, and let's roll with that. 
2 Peter 2, 1 and 2 says this, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter's warning the church, Church, listen, there might be false teachers among you. Just don't take for granted that, you know, as you read something on Facebook and said, well, I think it's in the Bible somewhere, so it's probably true. Do not feed that. Make sure, check the background. Is this true or not? In this way, they will be bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil, evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. It's so hard today because nobody wants to hear truth. Because well, I don't want to offend anybody. And so we take truth and we cover coat and sugarcoat it and make it sound really nice and not realizing we need truth. But again, when you look at the culture for what Nebuchadnezzar was doing to these young men, I'm going to change your name. I'm giving you a new identity. I'm going to give you from the king's table. I'm going to give you something that tastes good and it looks good and it's pleasurable. And I'm going to give you a new education. I want you to be indoctrinated with the way we think. That's what these young men were under. And I sit here and say, I believe the church is still under that. In the culture we live in. We've been given an identity in Christ and we don't listen to it. We listen to the other titles that we chase. And we've been said, set apart, do not eat these foods, but yet we want what is pleasurable to us or to our eyes and to our hands, to our ears. And then the truth, we're like, well, I know it's truth and that's hard to live by, so I'm going to go with what maybe sounds better. No doubt Satan wants to take us captive in this culture and lure us away from God, tempting us with the, with the power and the pleasure and the deceit. But how did Daniel handle this? And this is where we can learn from God's word and say, okay, so how did Daniel, how did he go against the culture like this? He was taken captive. And so many times we can easily be taken captive, right? Look at verse 8 with me. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel 1, verse 8, it said this, But Daniel made up his mind not to defy himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief official for permission to eat other things instead. He was determined. He was resolved. He was committed and determined to say, No, I am not going to do this. And we look at the ancient Hebrew word here for defile. It means to pollute, to contaminate, or to stain. And that Daniel requested that he might not pollute himself. He was looking at this, explaining to the guys in charge, this is sort of a spiritual request that I'm making here. Because what I'm about ready will defile, it will pollute me. And not that the food was poisoned, but that spiritually I've been told not to. And I must stand my ground. And it may seem that David made a big deal over a little thing. Sorry, I'm not going to eat that. I just... But the only way to go with God is to be faithful in the little things. Sometimes we want to be faithful in all these big things. And God says, how about you just be faithful in the little things first? Let's start there. We might ask Daniel, why bring religion into it? But Daniel realized that the, his relationship with God touched every area of his life. If my giving into this little thing here, if I do that, guess what? It affects everything over here. Daniel and his friends considered the king's food defiled for at least for a few reasons. 
One was undoubtedly it was kosher. Second of all, it was probably sacrificed to idols. And third, eating the king's food implied fellowship with the Babylonian cultural system. For those reasons, Daniel said, I can't. Now, Daniel didn't object to the name given to him. I think he already knew who he was in Christ and God. He knew his Lord. Didn't object to the name change. He didn't object to the Babylonian education because he knew what he believed. He was solid in his truth and solid in his belief. But Daniel did object to the food from the king's table because eating it was direct disobedience from God's word. By Eastern standards, to share a meal with another person was to commit not just fellowship, but a covenant, a significant relationship with that person when you share a meal. I don't know, uh, this is probably a stretch, okay? But you remember the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, maybe? And they went to that palace, and they had to eat monkey brains and a bunch of really gross foods. And the girl was like, she was like, like uh, getting really sick and grossed out, right? But it was like, no, you need to eat this or you're going to offend the prince, right? That's what we're talking about. You're sitting at the table, you must partake. When we've gone to the Dominican Republic before, I remember we had an evening where we were at the school and, and people from the neighborhoods, from the barrios, brought in food and, and they, they put the food on your plate for you. Now, these are people that didn't have much. And we were the guests of honor and they filled our plates. And I don't know what meat it was. I'm looking at it, I know it wasn't beef. No, it wasn't chicken. I'm looking for the neighborhood dogs and cats. And I'm not sure if I'm going to like this, but guess what? My plate is full, and to not eat it would offend those who brought it to me. And as much as maybe I didn't like it, I was like, I can't offend them. i got to eat it, right? In this situation with Daniel, he was like, I can't eat it because, not because I don't want to offend you, but because it's going against what God has told me. Now, God did not forbid drinking wine. Nevertheless, in pagan cultures, most wine and meat was dedicated to their gods. So Daniel and his friends refused it. And he made a, a very remarkably courageous decision, especially when we think of all the reasons why it was hard for him to make that decision. Now listen very carefully to these because I think this is why we sometimes give into our culture today. These are the kind of excuses we can make today, like, well, I was going to stand up, but I thought this is probably why I shouldn't. First of all, the king... Or the menu. Now, rejecting the menu is rejecting the king, right? So that could result in severe punishment. So refusing the food might have branded them as being uncooperative with the king. And if I'm uncooperative with the king, guess what? I'm going to spoil all my chances of advancement with the king. So I better do this so I make the king happy so I can move up in my position. Have we ever done that today in our culture? Where it's like, well, I know this is wrong, but my boss said, and if I want to move up in my position. I've got to do these things so I don't get fired, or at least so I can get up in my hiring my job. There's a real threat of punishment. Ancient kings were well known for severe and you know, often sadistic punishments, whoever crossed them. Nebuchadnezzar was really capable of great cruelty. We can read uh, from Jeremiah how he murdered the sons of one king of Judah before the king's eyes. And then he gouged out the eyes of that king, so his last memory, his last vision was seeing his sons killed. That's cruel. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Other rulers of Judah were literally roasted to death over a fire. 
that was Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm a little fearful of the king, so I don't want that to me, so I'm, I'll give in. Third thing, the food itself was no doubt pretty attractive. It seemed much better alternative than eating a vegetarian diet in water for three years, right? So come on, let's eat it. Mere distance uh, made this challenging, right? They're separated from home and family. It's easy to compromise. I'm away from home. Why not? It's okay. They could have used that excuse too. These are all excuses they could have used. They could have said it's easy to think that God has let me down, so why not? He's abandoned me. I don't see God around here. So why not? These exiles kidnapped from Jerusalem, they could have very easily said, hey, why should we risk our necks for God who let us down? Again, couldn't we use similar excuses like these young men could have used? Hey, listen, I know the culture I'm in right now is sort of crazy, but listen, I don't want to be uncooperative. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, I'm afraid I'll get in trouble and I'll get punished if I don't do what they're asking me to do. Hey, you know what? Actually, it looks sort of fun and looks sort of good. So what's the harm? Oh, you know, I'm away from my church home and those things I associate with my, with my faith. So um, I, well, I'm away from home and all that. It doesn't really matter, does it? By the way, if I can say this, your faith is not like a suitcase, okay? That you get to choose to take it with you when you leave it home. Some people treat their faith like that. I'll leave my faith at home and I'm going to go to work. I'll leave my faith at home I'm going to go to my sports team. I'm going to leave my faith at home I'm going to go to school. I'm sorry, you take your faith with you wherever you go. Maybe you feel alone or abandoned by God and you say, why should I not partake in this culture? Because you're believing a false lie, a lie, a false truth. God has not left you. The feeling that he's not there, that's a feeling. Truth, he is there. Do not believe that false truth. In this, Daniel illustrated how to conquer a difficult trial and glorify God before others in the midst of all this testing. He was determined. He was resolved. Look what he goes on to say that he did. Picking up in verse 9. Now God had given the chief official great respect for Daniel. But he was alarmed by Daniel's suggestion. My Lord, the king has ordered that you eat this food and wine. And he said, if you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded for neglecting my duties. Which Nebuchadnezzar would have done that. Daniel talked it over with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief official to look over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's rich food. Then you can decide whether or not to let us continue eating our diet. So the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and he tested them for 10 days. Don't you love this? He didn't protest. He didn't raise a stink. He just calmly went to the guy in charge and said, Hey, can we try something here? My faith, my God, that I worship, I can't do this. Instead, how about we try this? How about we try a different diet? Can we just sort of see how it works? You have 10-day tests. After 10 days, if you don't think I look as healthy as these other men, so be it. 
And the official that was attending to him said, okay, let's try this. Look at verse 15. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than young men who had been eating the foods assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the rich foods and the wines. Verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for learning the literature and the science of the time. God gave Daniel special ability in understanding the meanings of visions and dreams. And when the three-year training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief official brought all these young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with each of them, and none of them impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they were appointed to his regular staff of advisors. In all matters requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, the king found the advice of these young men to be ten times better than that of all the magicians, enchanters in his entire kingdom. Isn't that awesome? Daniel said, I will stand for you, God. And I'm not going to do it in a way that's so rebellious and brings attention to me, but I'm going to trust you that you're going to help me through this situation. And there was something about Daniel's approach where he could have went on a hunger strike. He could have made a big mess out of it in protest. But instead he went in a polite way and he went up and said, just put me to the test. And he showed wisdom in how he did it. It was amazing. And we read through this story. And I think about how Daniel had this long, successful career in the worst of circumstances. You saw what happened at the end of the story. How God showed favor on him and the three others. And today I look at our world compared to this. And we see the challenge not to be captured and carried away in a culture that is taking us away from God. I'm sorry, but a lot of our workplaces and school and places where we hang out are not cultures that are saying, hey, come here to grow closer to God. You don't turn on the TV and say, hey, you watch, by watching these uh, sitcoms or these TV shows or these movies, this is going to bring you closer to God. That's not the culture we live in. It's not the culture we live in. The past few weeks, I have wrestled in my heart with the results of a culture that's not seeking God and the devastation it's leaving behind. Rhonda got up here and talked about Jameson Camp. And I think about that young man. And when we first moved uh, out of town into town, our back a yard and, and the camp's backyard was back to back and those boys were just a year old, I believe. And we've known them for so long. And to see a young man gone because of what's going on in this world. To see young people take their life, I don't get it. I don't understand it. To see college kids, kids that go off into other environments and say, it's okay to get involved in this culture because that's what's expected. To go to a college campus, oh, you're expected to drink and to party and to come home wasted and to lose your virginity and to act a certain way. That's expected when you go to culture or, that, or college and that culture. And I'm sitting there saying, no, it's not. As a child of God, that's not the culture we're supposed to be a part of. Why is it okay? It's not okay. The music we listen to, the things we look at, the lack of purity in, in relationships. And I sit there and think, God, the culture we're in now is just pulling us away from you. How do we remain strong? How do we have that resolve that Daniel had? 
because I don't want to be a part of that. It's time for us to wake up and realize that without God, life is a disaster. Without God, life is impossible. We're too worried about pleasing others. Well, I don't want to offend them. You know what? I'm sorry you don't want to offend them. I'm sorry you don't want to hurt their feelings, but I'd rather keep them from going to hell than them just being mad at me. Charles Spurgeon, when he talked about, you know, if I've got to go, if they're going to go off to hell, I want it to be that I've got my arms wrapped around their legs, trying to keep them from getting there, to do everything I can to share Christ with them and the love of God with them. Our cautious faith becomes lukewarm. And we can't allow that as a church. We can't allow that as a church. I do not want this church to be a church like in Revelation 3, where Jesus says, I know all the things you do, and you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but since you're lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door. I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on the throne just as I am victorious and sat with my Father on the throne. That's what I want us to be, a church that's victorious. One is not lukewarm. One that says, well, it's okay to just hang out in the culture. No, it's not. I want to be a church that's on fire for God. And I don't want just our church to be a church that's on fire for God. I want all of Northwest Ohio and Southern and Central and the United States, all of our churches to get on fire for God. And, you know, so where does it start? How about it just starts with us? How about it start with us? I encourage you today, be bold, be strong, be courageous. Rise up, church. Let's be victorious saints. Let's proclaim that God is alive and that his word is true and that in the midst of a culture that is captivating us and taking us away from him, we can still stand strong amidst that. 2 Timothy 1.12, and I'll close with this. Worship team, would you please come forward? 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I'm not ashamed of it, for I know in the one whom I trust. Did you hear that? I'm not ashamed of what I believe. For I know in the one whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard that what I've entrusted to him until the day he returns. Church, I want to encourage you to do this, as Daniel and his friends did. First of all, pray. Seek the wisdom of God. How do I respond to the culture I'm in right now? Pray, pray, pray. Gather your peers. Pray together. Gather your children. Pray with your children. Gather your friends. Pray with your friends. Find a group of friends who have similar Christian values and stand boldly together. Because alone you will not stand. You need your Christian brothers and sisters to stand with you. And if you're standing in a wrong crowd, it's time to get out of that crowd and stand in the right crowd. Set yourselves apart. Because that's what it means to be holy, set apart, and blameless. And that's who we are. Either we wait for things to change or we become a part of God's solution. I believe it's time for us to become a part of God's solution. And to stand for him. I love reading through the book of Daniel. It fires me up. I get excited about this. I hope and pray as we continue to go through Daniel, we're going to keep learning more about when we're surrounded by this culture, how do we stand? How do we stand? Church, we've got a lot we can do, right? But it just starts with us, first of all, making that resolve, that commitment. Daniel and his friends made that decision long before they stood before the king. Long before they got taken captive, they already said, this is how I will live. Can we make that same proclamation? proclamation. God, I'm choosing to live this way for you so that when I face this culture, when I face that temptation, when I face that pleasure, I I don't have to bow to it because I've already decided to stand for you. Can we make that proclamation? Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. 
God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Daniel. I thank you, Lord, for how he and his three friends, when they had to travel together in a culture that was just crazy, in a culture that they could have made all kinds of excuses to bow, to eat food that they shouldn't have eaten, to act a certain way they shouldn't have acted. They chose to seek wisdom from you and then politely ask those that were there, saying, you know what? I've got a better way to do it. It's a godly way. And I thank you that they had that resolve and then that determination in them. God, I pray for the same for our church, that we have that resolve, that determination that says, God, it's a tough culture out there, but I want to stand for you. I want to live for you. I want to make choices that are obedient to you. So God, help us to be that kind of church. Help us to be that kind of church that is truly seeking you. God, I thank you for this church body. I have 25 baptisms. Hallelujah. GPS, Tupac, seeing these kids in this building. Thank you, Lord. We have so much to be thankful, Lord. We praise you for that. Help us to continue to stand for you. In my precious name we pray. Amen.